I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no non-contemporaneous reports. This is Encounter 702, Mothman Unplugged. Mothman, it's the winged red-eyed figure hovering over the paranormal. and In my mind, it's always been kind of a Rorschach test. Was what happened in the Ohio Valley in 1966 and 1907 primarily a series of cryptid encounters? An alien visitation related to the huge UFO flap that dominated the area? Was it just a big bird? Was it related to an old Native American curse? Where do you hang your hat on this? The answer, perhaps, says a lot about what parts of the paranormal universe appeal to us the most. Writer Greg Bishop in 2007 featured the Mothman events in a top 10 sightings list on the website of the 40 in Times magazine, describing it this way. He says, quote, There was so much weirdness connected with this story, men in black, doppelgangers, furtive lights, strange phone calls, that many UFO investigators and historians refused to take the case seriously. That's a shame, as there may be keys here to unlocking the interconnected nature of the UFO phenomena with other 40 in issues, end quote. We're going to look at the Mothman complex of events over the next several episodes. And the episodes are are designed to stand alone a bit so you can jump around. But in this encounter, I'm calling it Mothman Unplugged because we're going to look at the events in Ohio and West Virginia during 66 and 67 solely from material that originated at the time. A lot of detrius has accreted around Mothman, so much so that it's difficult to get back to the core of the story. So today, we're going to look at the complex of weirdness in the Ohio Valley from November of 1966 to December of 1967, solely through the lens of newspaper stories, correspondence, and contemporaneous memos and reports. In the coming weeks, subsequent episodes will address the way the event has been sort of memorialized and interpreted in books such as Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge and The One Everybody Knows, John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, as well as associated material like Woody Derenberger's book about his contact experience at the time in in a, a book called Visitors from Lanulos. We'll also be examining further claims of Mothman sightings, various interpretations of the events, decades after they happened, and the assorted cultural things that have grown up around it. For now, though, let's go back to 1966. In examining the weirdness that happened in the Ohio Valley during 1966 and 1967, we're not going to start with Mothman, him, her, itself. Instead, we're starting with Woodrow Derenberger, who had a flying saucer contact experience on November 2nd, 1966. Fortunately for us, Derenberger appeared on local television the next day to tell his story, and amazingly, really amazingly, honestly, given the time that's passed, the audio, at least, has survived. Here's the summary. We have the host starting things off, and then Derenberger. 
Our guest is Mr. Dernberger of route number two, Mineral Wells, West Virginia. Mr. Dernberger has a very interesting story to tell us this evening. I will give you a thumbnail sketch to begin with. Whether or not you believe in unidentified flying objects or not is not the point. Whether you believe in what you hear or see on this program is not the point. We are here to talk to a man that allegedly did make contact with such an object within the Parkersburg area last evening, November the 2nd, 1966, at approximately 7.25 p.m. The incident allegedly took place on Interstate Highway 77 near the interchange of Route Number 47. This gentleman is a salesman in the area. He has been a resident of the area for the past 50 years, and he has uh, given us permission to interview him, uh, to show his face, and to call him by name. This in itself takes a lot of initiative and, to be very plain, a lot of know-how. Mr. Dernberger, in your own words, would you please relate what happened last night? Well, I, was, I am a salesman, and I drive a truck. And last night, uh, shortly after 7 o'clock, I was coming from Marietta, Ohio, coming down Interstate 77. And just before I came to the intersection of uh, Route 47, there was a car passed me, overtaking me from behind. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. And as the car ahead, or the car behind passed me, this object was following close behind it, and it swerved directly in front of my truck, turning crosswise. And when it turned crosswise, it slowed down. It started slowing, not abruptly or too fast, but it gave me plenty of time to step on my brakes and slow down with it. But it forced me to come to a complete stop. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck. And I had done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me what I was called. And I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. And he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg, he pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing, and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was uh, Parkinsburg. It was a city, a town. And he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business. It's where we transacted our business. That the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his, where his home was, that that was called a gathering. 
And uh, again, he told me not to be frightened, which I was. I was, I was very frightened. And as far as I can understand, this was all mental. There was no spoken words from him. I knew what he was asking me, but yet he stood there and his mouth did not move. He had a smile on his face. He was he appeared very courteous and friendly. And after I talked with him a while, he told me he would see me. He said, we will see you again, and he left in his vehicle. Darren Berger will return to our story a bit in this episode and more later on down the road. A couple weeks after Woodrow's encounter, two couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette, encountered a strange creature on the night of November 15, 1966. Here are the statements the Scarberries made to the Point Pleasant police. We'll begin with Linda, and then Roger will conclude the story. We were riding through the TNT area on a side road by the old powerhouse building around midnight on Tuesday night, November 15, 1966. When we came over the small rise in the road, all at once Steve yelled for us to look at that thing in the road. I looked up and saw it go around the corner at the old powerhouse. It didn't run, but wobbled like it couldn't keep its balance. Its wings were spread just a little. We sat there a few seconds, then Roger took off. I kept yelling for him to hurry. We didn't even stop for the curves. We got out on Route 62 and was coming down the road, and that thing was sitting on the second hill when you come into the first bad curves. As soon as our lights hit it, it was gone. It spread its wings a little and went straight up into the air. When we got to the armory, it was flying over our car. We were going between 100 and 105 miles per hour down that straight stretch, and that thing was just gliding back and forth over the back end of the car. As we got there, in front of the lights by the resort, it dived at our car and went away. Then we went down to Tiny's drive-in and told Gary what we saw, and told him to call the police. When the police got there, Gary and the police followed us back up the road where we saw it again. The dog was gone. But when his car came over the hill behind us, it was gone. From there, we went back to this field, but didn't see it again. So we went down to town. Then we went with the deputy sheriff back to the power plant and stopped. We sat in the car and saw dust or smoke coming up from the coal yard beside the plant. From there, we went back and got in the car and went home. Next day, Wednesday. The next day, we went back to the power plant and looked around where Steve saw it again in a boiler inside the plant. Then Wednesday night, it was seen at Thomas's home in the TNT area. We went up to Thomas's home the same night and found a footprint this thing had made. Thursday. Thursday, we went up to the plant with reporters and went through it. While we were inside, Steve shuts the boiler door. When we were outside, we hear a loud noise. We went back inside, and the door was open. What this thing looked like. It is about six feet tall, with large wings on its back. It has a shape of a man. It has two red eyes about two inches in diameter, six to eight inches apart. A wing spread of ten feet. This thing, whatever it is, is definitely not a crane or goose or balloon or any of the things it's been called. I have seen it know what it looks like. The day after the sighting, local newspapers picked up the story, and here's the account from the Point Pleasant Register of November 16th, 1966. It was a bird or something 
it definitely wasn't a flying saucer. Two Point Pleasant couples said they encountered a man-sized bird-like creature in the TNT area about midnight last night. Sheriff's deputies and city police went to the scene about 2 o'clock this morning, but were unable to spot anything. But the two young men telling their story this morning were deadly serious and asserted they hadn't been drinking. Steve Millette of 305 Jackson Avenue and Roger Scarberry of 809 30th Street described the thing as being about 6 or 7 feet tall, having a wingspan of 10 feet and red eyes about 2 inches in diameter and 6 inches apart. It was like a man with wings, Millette said. It wasn't like anything you'd see on TV or in a monster movie. The men and their wives were in Scarberry's car between 11.30 p.m. and midnight when they spotted the creature near the old power plant adjacent to the old National Guard armory buildings. The creature was seen standing on three occasions and was described as being extremely fast. It flew about 100 miles an hour, but was a clumsy runner. Deputy Millard Halstead said he had seen dust in the vicinity of a coal field, but it could have been caused by the bird, he said. I'm a hard guy to scare, Scarberry said, but last night I was getting out of there. They did just that, but the thing followed them. They said it was hovering over the car, apparently gliding, until they reached the National Guard Armory on Route 32. We went downtown, turned around, and went back, and there it was again, Millette said. It seemed to be waiting on us. He said the light, gray-like creature then scurried through a field. It had also flown across the top of the car. It apparently is afraid of light, Millette reasoned, and maybe it thought it was scaring us off. The young men said they saw the creature's eyes, which glowed red, only when their lights shined on it, and it seemed to want to get away from the lights. They said it looked like a man with wings, but that its head was not an outstanding characteristic. Both were slightly pale and tired from lack of sleep during the night following their harrowing experience. They speculated that the thing was living in the vacant power plant, possibly in one of the huge boilers. There are pigeons in all the other buildings, Millette said, but not in that one. If I'd seen it by myself, I wouldn't have said anything, Scarberry commented, but there were four of us who saw it. They said it didn't resemble a bat in any way, but maybe what you would visualize as an angel. The last time they saw it was at the gate of the C.C. Lewis farm on Route 62. They heard a sound like wings flapping and said the bird rose straight up like a helicopter. This doesn't have an explanation to it, Millette said. It was an animal, but nothing like I've ever seen before. Are they coming back to look for the creature? Yes, Millette said, this afternoon and again tonight. Today, Scarberry said, but tonight... I don't know. There's also a write-up from Mary Heyer, who's going to be the premier chronicler of the strange events in the Ohio Valley. Heyer was the Point Pleasant correspondent for the Athens Messenger. Athens is a town in Ohio about an hour north of Point Pleasant. Here's her story from November 16, 1966, with the headline, Winged Red-Eyed Thing Chases Point Couples Across Countryside. Point Pleasant. What stands six feet tall, has wings, two big red eyes, six inches apart, and glides along behind an auto at 100 miles an hour? Don't know? Well, neither do Four Point Pleasant residents, who were chased by a weird man-like thing Tuesday night. Two young Mason County married couples today told of being chased by the strange creature around midnight Tuesday. Mr. and Mrs. Steve Millette, 3505 Jackson Avenue, and Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry, 809 1⁄2 30th Street, described their harrowing experience, which began in the TNT area. 
The two couples were riding in a car. As the auto crested a hill, an object loomed in front of them. The object was in the form of a man, about six feet tall, with wings on its back. Becoming frightened, the couples drove away. As they approached a traffic circle near Route 62, they said the thing loomed in front of the car again. Mallet 20 said that they drove toward Point Pleasant on Route 62 at 100 miles an hour, with the strange creature drifting along behind the car. The couple said the thing seemed to avoid lights. When they turned into the C.C. Lewis farm, the creature was again in front of the car. What appeared to be a large dead dog was lying on the road. Later, the couples and police returned to the farm, but the dog had vanished. Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead searched the TNT area. The deputy said the thing was gone, but he found a strange pile of dust. Scarberry 18 said, Believe me, if you ever saw it, you'd be a believer. The men said they might go looking for the thing tonight, but indicated they were afraid they might find it. As the story spread and more witnesses came forward, speculation about what the creature might be began to circulate. Dr. Robert Smith of the West Virginia University Biology Department claimed that it was probably a sandhill crane, leading to subsequent news reports of how the creature, if it was a sandhill crane, was protected as an endangered species. One such story ended with the sentence, quote, Sheriff George Johnson said he would arrest any persons caught in the TNT area with a loaded gun after dark. There were earlier reports of armed people roaming the area. Johnson has asked that residents not harm the bird, end quote. A November 18th article in the Huntington, West Virginia Herald-Dispatch posits a different mundane solution and tells of another witness account. A Fairland High School teacher suggested Thursday that the seven-foot mothman seen flying in the Point Pleasant area Tuesday night and early Wednesday may have been an experimental balloon. Edward Pritchard of Huntington, an advisor for the Proctorville, Ohio School's Science Interest Club, said two balloons were recently released as part of an air current study project. They were plastic sacks filled with natural gas and measured some four by seven feet when inflated, he said. One was released Tuesday night and another Wednesday morning. A similar balloon was released November 1st and apparently triggered several regional unidentified flying object reports before it came to Earth near Pruntytown, West Virginia. A capsule inside the balloon asks the finder to return it to the school. Mr. Pritchard said the balloons released from the school would be carried over Mason County by prevailing winds, quote, and people's imagination might do the rest. Besides, the wind can play tricks with these things, and they do look strange at times, end quote. One radio station came to Mason County armed and carrying tear gas bombs Wednesday night. Raymond Walmsley, Mrs. Catherine Walmsley, and Mrs. Marcella Bennett visited the Ralph Thomas home Wednesday, a short distance from the TNT power plant where the creature is supposedly domiciled. Mrs. Bennett, carrying her baby in her arms, started to her car and was suddenly confronted with the bird of paradise. She screamed and, panic-stricken, dropped her baby and fell to the ground. She described the thing as a huge, gray-winged creature with large red eyes. Clearly a sandhill crane. November 21st, 1966 article in the Point Pleasant newspaper reports that the original witnesses and new ones disputed any sort of bird-based explanation. Headline, Early Opinions Split Over What Bird Really Was. Calls, letters, and rumors continue to plague the Mason County Sheriff's Office from persons offering information on the so-called bird that was spotted in Mason County last Tuesday night. However, the original four persons who reported their experience to Deputy Sheriff Millard Halstead 
are not convinced that the creature is a bird. Dr. Robert Smith of the West Virginia University Biology Department said the description fits that of a sandhill crane, but Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry contend that the creature they saw around midnight Tuesday had the shape more like that of a man, but had a wide wing spread and red eyes. Meanwhile, Halstead said four other persons said they saw the creature Saturday night on Camp Conley Road, about one mile back from the main highway on State Route 62. Four youths, Billy Burdett, 16, Daryl Love, 18, Johnny Love, 4, and John Morrow, 4, all of Point Pleasant Route 2, described it as having red eyes and said when they got close to it, it flew off. Hundreds of sightseers have toured the TNT area since the report by local news media Wednesday, but during the weekend, traffic tapered off after some authorities labeled it as a sandhill crane. Halstead said today he had received two letters from persons across the country who were offering information in an attempt to identify it. A Silver Springs, Maryland resident, Henry J. Fry, said he had read the account in the Washington Daily News. Fry said he is, quote, an authority on many subjects, end quote, and has concluded from the description that it is a great blue heron. He said these birds belong to a family of wandering birds. Halstead received another letter from Donald Birchfields, who lives in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and had picked it up in a local paper. He is of the opinion that it's a sandhill crane, it was also reported the Sandhill Crane has a bigger population than 30, as reported earlier. And more witnesses came out of the woodwork, including this harrowing tale from the November 25th edition of the Point Pleasant paper. Headline, oh, that bird, it was seen again. Mason County's famous bird is apparently still with us and has made its appearance in the daytime for the first time. Tom Urey, a Clarksburg resident, told the sheriff's office he had an experience with the bird this morning at 7.15 a.m. as he traveled north on Route 62. Urey, an assistant manager of the Kinney store at Clarksburg, was en route back to the northern city after spending Thanksgiving here with relatives when he encountered the bird. I know people think you're crazy when you tell of seeing something like this, but I've never had such an experience. I was scared. In giving an account to the register, the frightened young man said as he went up the road, he spotted a flying object that seemed to come from the woods on his right. After his description of the area, it was determined it came from the area back of the Homer Smith residence. It looked like a helicopter, then veered over my car. It began going around in circles, about two or three telephone poles high, and kept staying over my car. Well, his first thought was that of fear, Yuri noted, I tried to get away and was going 70 miles an hour, but it kept up with me easily. He stated that it was soaring over his vehicle until he got to Kirkland Memorial Gardens, and then it made its way to the left and over the river. Apparently still shook up, Yuri said. I have a convertible, and at first it felt like it was going to come through the top, but after it stayed in the air about the same height, I didn't feel it would attack. As we move into 1967... Mary Heyer of the Athens Messenger began to chronicle the UFO sightings that were beginning to occur in great numbers in the region, as well as continued sightings of the creature. In the January 22, 1967 edition of her Where the Waters Mingle column, Mary discussed some further sightings both of UFOs and of the creature, and gave some indication of the immensity of the events. The origins and motivations of these creatures, if they are real, can only be speculated, but millions of people throughout the world are now convinced that something is going on and that there is somebody out there. More and more respected scientists are beginning to take the matter seriously as they delve into the question of life on the other worlds. In her March 5th column, 
She told of her own sighting. I was driving south on Bayan Street at the intersection of 6th along with my husband Scotty and his sister, Mrs. Alice Bradshaw, when I noticed that the boys at the Park Pure Oil Station on the corner were looking upward. As I drove out 6th Street, I told my husband and sister-in-law to look in the sky and see if they could see anything, and they saw this strange UFO. I parked in front of the State Theater and along with others watched it travel very slowly southward. There were no sounds. When we first saw it, we could see an outline of the spherical shape with lights on the bottom. It looked very tall with its longest part upward. The same day that column was published, Heyer sent a letter to John Keel, a writer and UFO investigator from New York. Keel had visited the region investigating the creature and UFO sightings, and Mary had taken up the job of keeping Keel informed of happenings in the Point Pleasant region. The Connie mentioned here is Connie Joe Carpenter, a Mothman witness, and Mary Heyer's niece. Connie had a man attack her as she was leaving her house for school, and he tried to get her in the car and tore her blouse and scratched her, and they found a note on their porch saying, Remember, girl, I can still get you. Her mother has been worried and wonders if there could be any bearing on the Munster deal. A couple weeks later, Keel related this episode in a letter to Jerome Clark, a fellow ufologist. Now, first, let me tell you about West Virginia. I made several long-distance calls in the last few days and have received several letters from my contacts down there. The kidnap attempts were made by a tall young man with a dark complexion. He wore a black coat and a black cap with a bill on it. He was driving an old car that looked new inside and out. The girl he attacked, a key Mothman witness, thought he was about 25 years old, and she, as well as the police, assumed he was a normal human being unknown to the area. She didn't get his license number since, of course, her only concern was to escape from him. Keel also relate a story from Mabel McDonald, the mother of Linda Scarberry, one of the original November 15th witnesses. Here, Mabel describes a very strange encounter she had with a dark-complected man. He was very dark, and his English was so poor. I never did really figure out what he wanted. His eyes were funny-looking, kind of starey and glassy from what I could get from him. He was looking for a travel insurance company, but he kept saying trip insurance. I gave him directions to the insurance company, and when he went out the door, he went just the opposite than what I told him. I'd never seen him before or since. Keel continued his letter to Clark with an account of a similar man, if not the same man, confronting Mary Heyer in her newspaper office. He also amused a bit about the nature and actions of these strange visitors. This character, or another just like him, wandered into the office of Mary Heyer, a newspaper reporter that same week, maybe the same day. I still have to straighten out the details. Anyway, he spoke to Mary, but seemed articulate. I should mention that he was dressed in a billed black cap, black coat, and dark trousers and shoes. His clothes, Mary said, looked quite cheap, poor material. He was dark-skinned, but his face, while unusual, was not too abnormal. This man asked for directions said he was hitchhiking across the country and seemed disinterested as she answered the questions. Anyway, when he left, he told Mary that he would be seeing her again. I'll be here, she answered cockily. It wasn't until she compared notes with the first woman that they began to think too much about it, then they got in touch with me. Meanwhile, northwards, Woodrow Derenberger, you you know his contact story of November 2nd, 66, is claiming that he's been revisited several times by the same type of character. I expect to spend some time with Darren Berger on this trip, and we'll size him up most carefully. A lot of other 
things are happening down there. Too many things for me to ignore any longer. You will probably not be hearing from me for a while. I'll drop you a line when I return from my trip through Ohio and West Virginia. I think it's going to be damned interesting. Why would our aliens dress so uniformly and make themselves so conspicuous? This is one of the most puzzling questions. They don't seem very bright, do they? If I were an alien, one of my first moves would be to walk into a clothing store and obtain some local clothes. In fact, back in my wandering days as a foreign correspondent, seven years in over 40 countries, I always made it a policy to buy and wear acceptable native clothes when I arrived in a new country. It helped open a lot of doors and wiped away the wealthy American stigma. Of course, our visitors may not have any local currency, but that shouldn't be too big a problem to a country with their technology and intelligence facilities. There's something rotten here. Derenberger claims they want publicity but don't quite know how to get it. I'm in a position to give them all the blooming publicity they care for. In fact, I would love to direct a public relations campaign for them. They should understand us well enough by now to realize that a certain amount of underhanded subtlety is necessary. Maybe they're as baffled by us as we are by them. Keel puts aliens in quotation marks in this letter, and I think he's genuinely curious as to what's going on. We're seeing, not to look ahead too much, but we're seeing the development of the man in black phenomenon sort of in real time here. Back in our early episodes, we met Al Bender and saw the origins of this ufological or paranormal trope. And the experiences of Keel's contacts in West Virginia will get drawn into this, this larger story. And, and it's in these West Virginia experiences that the men in black will go from sort of sinister, almost government-like figures to just being downright odd in addition to sinister. As Keel said in his letter to Clark, he was heading back to West Virginia. In a March 20th, 1967 article, Mary Heyer promoted his investigatory visit and shared another Mothman sighting in which a teenager saw the creature hovering low and traveling fast near the Silver Bridge, which spans the Ohio River and connected Ohio and West Virginia. And more Mothman sightings were to come from an April 2nd, 1967 article. This week, a Point Pleasant couple told me that while traveling on Route 35 at dusk one day last December, a creature hovered over their car for about two miles. They first noticed it when they saw the people in the car in front of them looking back. Another car was following them. All three cars increased their speed up to about 70 miles an hour, but the creature stayed right with them. When they slowed down, it did too, they said. The couple said that it had a wingspan as wide as the highway. This makes 11 different parties who have reported seeing this creature, whatever it is. Quite possibly others have seen it, but not reported it. The family who saw it on Route 35 recently said they believed it was operated by some mechanical device. Friday night I received more calls of sightings over Point Pleasant. In April of 1967, Keel composed a preliminary report for the private confidential viewing of some of his ufological colleagues. His introduction to the subject conveys the sheer volume of work he had done over the previous months. Now, if some of this sounds different 
from what you've read in Keel's books or magazine articles or the Mothman prophecies. Remember, this was preliminary. He's still in the process of gathering information and working through his thoughts. And as we're going to see as this episode continues, some of Keel's thoughts were getting kind of strange. General summary of fact-finding trip into Ohio and West Virginia, March and April 1967. My trip of March 21st to April 8th carried me over hundreds of square miles in West Virginia and Ohio at the height of the current UFO flap. During this trip, I succeeded in pinpointing and closely observing several probable UFO bases, and I personally witnessed both UFO landings and takeoffs, and observed so many unidentified objects, many at very close range, that I actually lost count. On many occasions, I was accompanied by police, newspaper reporters, and other witnesses who can substantiate my observations. I also met with many witnesses, photographers, and silent contactees, and was able to develop further my theories and speculations on the widespread ground-level activities of the UFOs and the techniques of infiltration being employed by the UFO occupants. The major problem currently confronting us is the urgent need to determine the overall purpose behind the UFO activity. We must dedicate ourselves to this problem immediately. Thus far, the UFO occupants have successfully covered their operations by leading local police to believe they were coping with terrestrial activities and by confusing serious UFO researchers with a carefully planned program of deception based upon seeming contradictions and widely diffused phenomenon. Keel then goes on to issue some preliminary analyses of some 1966 and early 1967 UFO sightings in the region. This analysis features something that's become a bit of a thing in ufology, the Wednesday phenomenon. Keel noted that the greatest concentration of ground-level sightings occurred on Wednesdays and that, quote, nearly all the 1966 contacts or occupant sightings occurred on Wednesdays, end quote. He also explains that the pattern of sightings confirms what Jacques Vallée posited, that, quote, the less dense the population of an area, the more UFO activity there seems to be, end quote. He also includes some sample ground-level activity cases, including that of Tad Jones, who saw a metal sphere hovering about four feet above I-64 in West Virginia. When Keel and Mary Heyer investigated this, he discusses, he had visited the exact area of the sighting a few months after it had happened, and he realized that whatever the spherical object Jones had seen was, it was hovering directly over a gas line, which he thought might be significant. He also noticed some large animal tracks. He said they looked like huge dog tracks, quote, except they were not dog tracks and were so deep that the animal which made them must have weighed from 200 to 400 pounds, end quote. In something that would become common among some of these cases, Tad Jones received some interesting and somewhat disturbing messages after he discussed his sightings. The day after his sighting of January 19th, a crude note was slipped under Mr. Jones's door in Dunbar. Written in pencil on a sheet of ordinary notebook paper, this message declared that, quote, we know what you have seen and we know that you have talked. You'd better keep your mouth shut, end quote. This note was printed with certain flourishes, which were also present in a note pushed under the door of another witness in Middleport, Ohio, some 60 miles to the north. A few days later, another note, this one written on cardboard, was shoved under his door, informing him that, quote, there won't be another warning. Mr. Jones, 
considered the notes a prank. He also includes some additional information on Woodrow Derenberger and stories of other contactees. And some aspects of these stories echo the experiences of Mabel McDonald and some of the others. On Saturday, March 25th, 1967, I spent several hours with Woodrow Derenberger of Mineral Wells, West Virginia. Mr. Gray Barker of Clarksburg accompanied me on my visit. Derenberger is a charming, outgoing man with a sincere, ingratiating manner, and there were several witnesses to his original contact, people who were driving along Highway 77 and who claimed they actually saw him talking to the UFO occupant. Since that experience, Mr. Derenberger has been frequently revisited by the UFOs and has been taken for trips to the moon, Jupiter, and Saturn. His wife, a very attractive lady, blandly backs his stories and claims that the UFO occupants have visited their home, which is located on a hilltop surrounded by wide fields. She is somewhat afraid of the occupants. His original contact was with a man named Indrid Cold, he says, and he comes from the planet Lanolus. He has also been contacted by Jitro Kletaw of Venus and his wife Elvain. Dodd Hendricks and Yina of Mars have also been in touch with him. On Wednesday, March 8, 1967, Mr. Derenberger was taken for a four-hour ride to several planets. Like most contactees of the old school, he seems to have an answer for every question. Yet he tells his story with incredible conviction and sincerity. Since he's planning to write his full story for Dell and their new Flying Saucer magazine, I will not go into full details here. By now, I should be used to mysteries within mysteries, but something still bothers me. The first time I called the Derenbergers was immediately after I had decided to fly back to West Virginia. I spoke to Mrs. Derenberger long distance and explained I was planning to visit West Virginia the following Tuesday. She responded that she had heard there was going to be a secret meeting in Point Pleasant that Tuesday. She was not at all surprised that I planned to be there, and in fact, only a few minutes before I had spoken to Gray Barker and indeed had arranged to meet with him in Point Pleasant on Tuesday night. Gray insists that he had not spoken to either Derenberger for months. He was as mystified as I was about their apparent knowledge of our sudden plans. During our visit, I asked her point blank how she had known we were both going to Point Pleasant, and she answered that she had heard it from a Dr. Brigham in Cutler, Ohio. Unfortunately, I was never able to look up Dr. Brigham to find out how he knew. A middle-aged nurse in Gallipolis, Ohio, claims that she witnessed a UFO landing in November 1966, and that while she stood paralyzed with fear, two men got out of the craft, approached her, and questioned her briefly about her name, what she did, where she was from, and so on. Later, she says, she saw these same men on the streets of Gallipolis. She tried to report her story to the local authorities, but everyone laughed at her. Her alleged contact took place behind the rehabilitation hospital in Gallipolis, and the men were dark-skinned, dressed in overalls. Many witnesses have reported seeing UFOs descend into the abandoned mining area in the hills directly behind the hospital. Two elderly men in Point Pleasant, who claim a Derenberger-type contact, now refuse to discuss their adventure at all. They were visited by someone from Cincinnati, who apparently warned them not to get involved. Witnesses throughout West Virginia and Ohio report receiving mysterious phone calls, which consist of nothing but a long series of steady beeps. A mysterious unmarked single-engine plane, gray in color, had been repeatedly sighted around areas of Charleston, West Virginia, where UFOs had been previously reported. 
A mysterious girl, dark haired, short, about 17 years old, dressed in a black dress, made a house-to-house -house canvas of Point Pleasant recently. She simply walked into homes, looked around, made vague statements about taking a TV survey or selling magazines, but tried to do neither. She asked one 80-year-old woman if she had any children under six years old. She was seen to get into a car filled with men. A piece of cardboard covered the license plate. Three very tall, dark-skinned men have been seen frequently by many people in the Point Pleasant area. Police have received calls that these men have knocked at doors late at night, presumably selling magazines, although I couldn't find anyone who had bought anything from them. These men speak fluent, unaccented English, appear to have no car, and although they seem to have been in the area for at least a month, no one has any idea where they are staying. Keel also notes the presence of a naval station that was stockpiling what the locals called an ore that Keel described as similar to what was supposedly ejected from a flying saucer in New England in 1966. Whatever the material is, Keel does not believe it's any sort of ore. Today, Google Maps seems to label the location as a U.S. defense logistics agency, and I'm sure some of you out there who have contacts with the Deep State or other similar organizations might know something more about that. He also reported some of his own sightings, including this encounter, which triggered a great deal of fear, as well as some physical after-effects. On Sunday night, April 2nd, Mrs. Heyer and I returned to the observation point. As usual, we observed a number of moving stars and type A and B phenomena. But since she had to get up early the next morning, she left me at 12.30 a.m., April 3rd, and I sat alone in the car, occasionally getting out to flash signals at the more obvious non-stars overhead. At one point, while Mrs. Heyer was still with me, I flashed the word descend in Morse code, and one of these objects immediately dropped downward several hundred feet in a fashion which Mrs. Heyer described as like it was going down, from a, down a flight of stairs. But when I flashed such a message as, we seek contact and let us meet, there was no response. One hour after Mrs. Heyer left me alone on that hilltop, I saw a UFO apparently land nearby. I jotted down my immediate impressions in my notebook. Here's that record verbatim. 1.35 a.m. Observed descent of red and green object into ravine a few yards north of position. Object was clearly defined circular shape, glowing red with greenish upper surface, red spot flickering on top, and reddish portholes around the rim. Unable to determine exact size, but it appeared small, perhaps only 15 or 20 feet in diameter. At first thought, it descended over hill in background, but inspection of terrain with flashlight indicates it landed directly behind trees, only short distance away, awaiting developments. 145. Scared. Damn it. Locked car doors. 2 a.m. Drove to turnaround point. Turned and returned to original parking position. Unable to see anything in ravine. No lights or signs of activity. Still scared. Not anxious to get out of the car. Feel somehow that object is in ravine. 2.25 a.m. Observed bright orange UFO maneuver and descend in northwest in distance. Suddenly disappeared. No sign of moon, which was supposed to rise at 1.59 a.m. 2.35 a.m. Aware of what seemed to be a flash of pale pink light behind car. Similar flash seemed to occur a few minutes ago, but I decided it was in my imagination. No sounds or movements outside. Still trying to muster courage to leave car and look around. I feel they are very nearby. 
Note that in spite of my deep involvement and experience, I reacted to this low-level sighting by becoming painfully afraid. I was not at all afraid of the UFO which approached us the night before, but something about this red and green disc scared the hell out of me. For two days after this, my eyes were sore and itchy. This effect remained, though in a milder state, for about a week. I finally left the area around 3.30 a.m. The next day, I returned to the site with the sheriff of Mason County and one of his deputies. We climbed up and down the hills with a Geiger counter, searching for scorch marks or other signs of a landing, all with negative results. One odd thing about that visit. As the sheriff drove us up the hill to my observation point, his radio suddenly began to pick up broadcasts from the adjoining county. What makes this so remarkable is that his radio was turned off at the time. It turns off and on with a key, and the key was not even in the radio when these signals were heard. This baffled Sheriff Johnson even more than my sighting report. On the night of April 2nd and 3rd, there were substantial UFO sightings all over West Virginia, south of Charleston. A large group of people, including several state police officers, watched a formation of 15 lights maneuver over a forest and appear to descend into it. That was a long report, and I apologize for the length, but I think it was important and interesting to get a sense of Keel's mindset at the time. He closes this lengthy, single-spaced, confidential report with a series of preliminary thoughts on the meaning behind the sightings and the potential presence of otherworldly beings. 1. On the basis of repeated and careful observations which I compared with other good observers, I believe that the UFOs may be hiding as stars, keeping many important areas under constant surveillance. They can flit about with impunity on starlit evenings, but have to be more cautious during bad weather. During bad weather, they may operate at very low levels. Two, I suspect that there may now be fantastic numbers of these objects in operation in our atmosphere, basing themselves in national forests, isolated mountain regions, deserts, etc. Perhaps they have been this numerous for years, even centuries. Or perhaps the great numbers now here are recent arrivals and are merely the vanguard for the ones which will follow. Three, perhaps we only receive reports of the more obvious movements of these objects. They may be operating unnoticed over all our major cities, industrial sites, and military bases all of the time. The objects I did observe night after night did appear to be stationed in specific spots and usually did not move radically until the very late hours when the chances of being observed were minimal. Four. My present research, which is too involved to go into here, but which most of you are aware of, suggests that the UFO occupants are also operating freely and at will on the ground. They may not be living amongst us, but they might be wandering through our towns and cities largely unnoticed. We must be alert for any and all signs of such infiltration. Five. I now have a great deal of concrete evidence which indicates that the government particularly the U.S. Navy, is and has been collaborating directly with the aliens. If anything else, it's good to know that rumors of military-industrial-alien collaboration did not begin in the 1980s. It's good to see that that notion, that fear, has a longer history than that. In a May 11 letter, Mary Heyer reported another UFO sighting, as well as trouble with her phone line, ringing through as busy when it wasn't. Linda and Roger Scarberry continued to be haunted with mysterious circumstances. This time it was, quote, a noise or sound like a heartbeat around 3 a.m. 
Mary reported hearing the same things, and she told Keel, quote, I still say if they want me, come and get me. Her letter of May 14th reports more UFO and Mothman creature sightings, and she confines to Keel that, quote, a lot of educated and prominent people are very concerned and believe that something will happen here before too long. And I, too, believe it will, end quote. In a May 28th letter, Mary informed Keel that Roger and Linda Scarberry were getting divorced. The letters from Mary, available at johnkeel.com, are very valuable not only for the day-to-day information about the strangeness in West Virginia going on at the time, but also for glimpses into life in the Point Pleasant area at the time, like those of the, the Scarberry's uh, marital troubles. In the end, in the end, Linda is going to leave Roger for someone Mary calls John the Swede, who was going to take her to Sweden and treat her like she needed to be treated, since Roger apparently was unable to uh, to support the family in any meaningful way. And it's just little things like that that, um, that 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 always strike me because, well, they're interesting. In a letter of June 7th, she reported that the monster was, apparently, back. Dear John, well, I think the monster has arrived back in Point Pleasant again. Four boys were on a camp out Friday night at 3 a.m. They got up for something and saw this big gray thing that was about six or seven feet tall. It nearly frightened them out of their pants. They said it sounded like it flapped its wings about three times and then flew out of sight. The boys took off for home and sat up all night in one of the boys' kitchens. During the rest of the summer of 1967, Mary kept Keel informed of new sightings, the Scarberries still having marital problems, hearing Mothman on the roof, and numerous UFO encounters. As the end of 1967 approached, the letters continued at a slower pace, as Keel was back in West Virginia for at least part of the autumn. On the one-year anniversary of the initial Mothman sightings in November, more sightings were reported. Mary had dreams of John Keel being taken aboard a flying saucer. Mary's sister began to have visions of the future, some of which were coming true. And throughout November, numerous UFO sightings occurred, with Mary and many others gathering to watch the aerial shows on a nightly basis. John sent Mary a letter dated November 3, 1967, in which he makes some startling claims. There has, for a long time, been questions about the degree to which Keel and really many other ufological figures actually believed the stories about which they wrote and the degree to which those stories may have been embellished. And that's one reason I think going through these contemporary documents is so important. We see this in more detail down the road a bit when we look at the Mothman prophecies. But in this November 3rd letter to Mary Heyer, we get a glimpse of, I don't want to say paranoia, but it's clear that events in West Virginia and concurrent events in New York that we're going to see in the upcoming Mothman Prophecies episode are pushing Keel toward crafting a narrative that may or may not have been supported by the available evidence, but one that was, in my opinion, indicative more of a a belief-oriented stance based on the very strange things he was not only hearing about, but experiencing, and, and certainly a stance that was more concrete and narrowly defined than he would discuss years later, and, and, and much more sort of, sort of literal in the sense of the enemy is here than his later ultra-terrestrial discussions. The opening of this letter shows us a man who is feeling the pressure of his situation rather keenly. Dear Mary, thank you for your letter. 
It is hardly a secret that I am extremely concerned with what has been happening in Point Pleasant, and I often feel very helpless in the midst of these very rapidly developing situations. So much is going on everywhere now, and so little of it is being reported in the general press. Sometimes I despair and fear that I am fighting a one-man battle against time and against some monstrous unknown group. Keel then presents what really is the beginnings of an explanation or a solution to what's really been going on in the Point Pleasant region. I believe that UFO bases have been directly established somewhere in the Ohio Valley. I further believe that more and more UFO people are being brought in to man these bases and prepare for a military-like buildup. In the meantime, these people are engaged in a complicated program to keep everyone confused. They contacted Derenberger and probably many others to spread word that they are peaceful, etc., and to mislead the believers into thinking this is all a harmless operation. The monsters which have been appearing in West Virginia are probably meant to add to the confusion and to distract reporters, the Air Force, etc., as well as to make the situation seem ridiculous to outsiders and skeptics. These monsters are probably creations of the UFO people and are carrying out weird missions in the Point Pleasant area, spreading fear, spying on specific individuals, etc. This is interesting. He puts people in quotation marks, which to me indicates he's sort of indicating they're alien people in some way. But we'll, we'll go on. We'll, we'll go on. Um, we'll, we'll get to that. He continues by sharing his concern about the numerous strange people who have been spotted in the region. A brief disclaimer first. Writing in 1967, Keel is using racial and ethnic terms that are not obviously appropriate to our day and age, but were still in current use at the time. It's not my intention to offend or shock with the terms, but rather to present Keel's testimony in the most complete way I can. So just with that in mind, we continue with Keel talking about the odd people. Do not breathe a word of this to anyone. I could be mistaken, although I'm sure I'm not, and it would be senseless to start any kind of panic. Many of the UFO people are dark-skinned and look like Indians or Negroes. There are two types. One type wears black clothing and are dangerous. Another type wears gray clothing, and they are friendlier and more reasonable. Another type wears a green coverall type of garment and has usually long silver-white hair. Mrs. Bowen saw such a person, so did Mrs. Lily's daughter. There are still other types with pale complexions. They often have to wear thick-lensed glasses. One of these probably visited you in your office a few months ago. Be alert for stories about any of these, and be particularly alert for any increase in the dark-skinned people in your area. They may turn up wearing ordinary sports clothes. At first glance, you might mistake them as Negroes, but their facial characteristics are quite different. And as if this isn't bad enough, there's still another type who have normal complexions and normal features, but usually they have blonde hair, sometimes crew cuts, and black or gray eyes. They're often tall, over six feet. They dress normally and drive ordinary cars. There are both men and women in all types, and they may speak broken English, and they may have slight accents, like East Indians, from India. Many of these speak in biblical terms, using thou, etc., and have apparently memorized the Bible and are able to quote freely from it. They sometimes convince the devout they are angels or messengers from God. You know very well that I am most cautious in my discussion of these things, and I have good reasons for keeping many things to myself. I urge you to follow my example. Act interested and get people to talk about what they've seen, but do not try to give them any clues, or we might start a flood of rumors or worse, panic. 
Don't let people know that you have heard of these odd characters before. The best plan for you to follow is to write only about the UFOs, not about the people. Play up an occasional monster story, however, since they probably expect these monsters to receive some publicity. If there is an open contact in your area, and the witness comes to you freely with the story, I would appreciate it if you would check with me before printing the story. They might be trying to get some more lies into circulation, or they might be setting up some kind of hoax. Things are terribly complicated now. Okay. The question into my mind, and I'm going to be up front, I have not read every word John Keel has ever written, but the question on my mind, based on the documents originating from this time about this place, my question is whether or not he believed he was discussing, he was truly discussing an alien invasion force or some kind of terrestrial group. The foe he mentions in the opening of the letter, some monstrous unknown group, that's not definitive. I fully admit this may just be my way of thinking about it, but there's an ambiguity here that is clever as well as unsettling. And we know, we know, for example, from our last episode, that Keel's opinions about what these manifestations are would become more esoteric and less concrete over time. And, and that's why I'm wondering if, if there's the same sort of ambiguity going on here. Like I said, it's clever, but unsettling. And speaking of unsettling, Keel makes a prediction or relays a premonition that must have been deeply unsettling for Mary Heyer to read. Mary, I have good reasons for suspecting that there may soon be a disaster in the Point Pleasant area which will not seem to be related to the UFO mystery. A plant along the river may either blow up or burn down, Possibly the Navy installation in Point Pleasant will be the center of such a disaster. A lot of people may be hurt. If this should happen, notify me as soon as you can and write the story normally. Don't even hint to anybody anything about this. One of my major concerns in all of this is to protect the innocent people who become involved and to keep them from becoming overly upset or frightened. We are now fighting for time, and if they realize we suspect anything they might be forced to speed up their plans, whatever those plans might be. He concludes the letter in a similarly ominous tone, but with a glimmer of optimism. Shortly after I returned from my last trip to Point Pleasant in May, I was directly contacted by one of the UFO groups and have been in almost daily touch since then. I am also constantly watched by more than one group. I've been given a great deal of information, some of it nonsense, and some of it very valid. I have asked about you repeatedly and have been assured that you are in no danger. If anything unusual happened to you, such as another encounter with the black cars, notify me immediately, and I will take certain special steps to protect you in case of real trouble. I can probably get help to you very quickly, although, of course, I cannot guarantee it. Again, let me repeat. Don't tell anyone about this letter or what's in it. I'm sure you can now understand some of my problems. Maybe you can place this in your safety deposit box or strong box for future reference, and I hope I haven't shaken you up too much. There are weird and perhaps frightening days ahead for all of us, but I think that we will untangle all of this soon, and that my worst fears will never be realized. Take care of yourself. Wear the gold cross all the time, and please keep in touch with me. A subsequent letter, dated November 11th, contains more warnings, but in a considerably less dire tone. 
Dear Mary, just a quick line. Today I had another talk with my peculiar friends, and they told me to warn you that some strange things might start happening to you within the next few weeks. Some of these things will be calculated to frighten you. Your automobile might stall suddenly on lonely roads, and you might begin to receive a series of very odd telephone calls. The man who visited you recently may very well have been connected with all this, although we can't be 100% sure. They want to frighten you, a bit, in the hopes that you will stop pursuing UFO cases in your area. So don't let them buffalo you. Just keep on going the way you have been. Their bark is much worse than their bite. Keep me informed of anything unusual that happens. Mary Hire's Where the Waters Mingle column of November 16, 1967, a year and a day after the initial sightings, highlighted the continued sightings not only of the creature, but various and sundry UFOs, from traditional discs to plain old weird lights to cigar-shaped craft. And she expressed the hope that, quote, if they plan to stay here, we hope that in another year, someone will find the answer to just what is taking place, end quote. In a December 10th letter, Mary tells John, quote, nearly every night people call and say, you should see this thing in the sky, and they seem to come closer all the time, end quote. If you know the story, even the barest outline of the story, you know what happens five days later. After looking at numerous news stories on it, I decided that our exploration of this strange series of events can end for now with the text of the historical marker at the site on the banks of the Ohio River. Silver Bridge Collapse. Constructed in 1928. Connected Point Pleasant and Canaga, Ohio. Name credited to aluminum-colored paint used. First I-bar suspension bridge of its type in the U.S., Rush hour collapse on 15th December 1967 resulted in 31 vehicles falling into the river, killing 46 and injuring 9. Failed I-bar joint and weld identified as cause. Resulted in congressional passage of National Bridge Inspection Standards in 1968. I think the basic Mothman story, boiled down to the essentials, can go something like this. A guy meets a man in a flying saucer. People see a weird creature. People see UFOs. Really strange people tell people who've seen these things some really weird stuff that doesn't even make sense. People keep seeing the weird creature in UFOs. Some, some people have a sense of foreboding. A bridge collapses. People die. But beyond these basics, and just taking what we've seen here, not stories that would come out later or what was going on in other parts of the country, just here, we had a contactee, several contactee claims actually, but Woodrow Derenberger was the first one. We had government and military involvement with the munitions dump. We had the weird slag being stored. There is enough going on here that there would be no end of speculation as to what really happened in the Point Pleasant area. Next time, we continue our exploration of the Mothman milieu with a deep dive into Gray Barker's book, The Silver Bridge published in 1970, was the first book to examine the sightings and weirdness and other events surrounding the collapse of the bridge. We'll see more of John Keel in that book a bit, and Mary Heyer, and hopefully get some insight into Gray Barker's notions of the boundaries between fact and fiction, and the usefulness of crossing that boundary when the story demands. Special thank yous this episode. First, johnkeel.com. 
Doug Skinner has been building an incredible archive of John Keel's notes and correspondence, and it is an amazing resource. This episode could not have happened without it. Thank you also to the Mothman Wiki, um, which has some sort of long address that I can't spell out, but is linked in the show notes. It does an admirable job of keeping all things Mothman, including some of the really weird, sort of weird Mothman stuff, in some sort of organized location. They were a great source for newspaper articles. The Saucer Life, Encounter 702, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. It also featured the voices of Roberta Evangeline Straith as Mary Heyer, Nelson Sinat as Roger Scarberry, and Sasha Gimlinson as both Linda Scarberry and Mabel McDonald. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life, if you haven't, everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. Thank <laughs> you.